Hi everyone, I'm Tanvir Nasir, and this is the 100th episode of the Leadership Biz Cafe podcast. As this is a milestone episode, I thought this would be a great opportunity to look back at some of the amazing guests I've spoken with over the past 99 episodes and share some of their fantastic insights that address many of the issues leaders are dealing with today. As I was making the short list of the 10 guests I wanted to showcase in this special episode, I realized that a few of them were already highlighted in my favorite guest moments of 2021 episode. So in some ways, that episode acts as a companion to this one. But I knew without a doubt that I wanted to start this 100th episode retrospective with the very first guest I had on my podcast back in 2011. Silicon Valley venture capitalist and marketing specialist Guy Kawasaki, because he was the spark behind the creation of this podcast. You see, I was contacted by Guy's publicist about his releasing his latest book, Enchantment, and they wanted to know if I'd be interested in writing a piece about it. I emailed her back saying how I was starting a podcast and I would love to interview Guy about his book, to which I got a reply back from Guy, an enthusiastic, yes, I'd love to do it. The only problem was there was no podcast at that point. I just wanted to have the opportunity to speak to Guy and to learn from his experiences. So I spent that weekend with a pad of paper trying to not only come up with a format and concept for this show, but also what it would be called. So it's thanks to that query about Guy's book that you're now listening to this Leadership Biz Cafe podcast, and we're celebrating now our 100th episode. Now, there's a number of wonderful insights Guy shares in this interview about his book, Enchantment, such as, to become trustworthy requires that we take the first step in trusting others. But I especially like his comment here about influencing others and why he sees enchanting others as being a better approach for leaders to take in rallying people around their vision. I think the word influence uh, is is at best neutral, but perhaps a bit negative. And it implies that you are somehow, uh, I don't know, forcing is too strong a word, but somehow you're, you're inducing an unnatural change. And, you know, perhaps to the detriment of the person who's being influenced. And uh, I purposely, you know, didn't choose a word like influence or persuade or woo uh, because I think enchantment has a higher quality. Uh, it is a, a loftier goal. Uh, you know, I could I could influence you into buying a computer from a particular brand, right? But if that brand enchants you, I think it means that you you buy it with great delight. Six months later, you're very happy with the purchase, as opposed to uh, buyer's remorse. And in the case of Apple, you buy a Macintosh, then you buy an iPhone, iPod, iPad, iPad 2. Um, you know, that's an enchanting relationship as opposed to a relationship that started with them influencing you, promoting, selling, bludgeoning, you know, coercing or discounting you into buying something that you are not satisfied with in the long term. Listening back to this episode, it's hard not to smile hearing Guy in this first episode of my podcast mention something Tom Peters spoke about. Because just last year, I had the great fortune of speaking with Tom myself here on the same podcast Guy motivated me to create. 
And while I'm not featuring it here as I already did in my episode looking at my favorite guest moments from 2021, I still want to encourage you to check out my conversation with Tom Peters as there's a lot of great leadership insights in that episode as well. So the next episode I want to revisit is actually the 10th episode of my podcast where I got to speak with retired Campbell's CEO and renowned business leader Doug Conant. Now, there's so many great points that Doug shares in this episode like how leaders should treat their work as sacred ground because your work affects people's lives. But what really stood out for me was what Doug says here about why leaders need to foster a sense of community and shared purpose because it really touches on the underlying cause of so many of the issues we are seeing today. Quite frankly, if you don't create that sense of relationship with your associates, the people with whom you live and work, or with, with whom you work and the people with whom you live in the community and your family. If you don't create that kind of special connection, it's hard to expect them to have that special connection with the work you're trying to create. Right. Yeah. It's the, the spirit of reciprocity here is, 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 is very powerful, you know, and who has to take the initiative? I believe leaders of today have to take the initiative And they have to genuinely and authentically care about their associates in a way that enrolls them in the process. And they and in a way that says, I feel I feel good about being here. I feel appreciated. I'm going to lean into this a little harder and in a little more complete way in order to get the job done, because I don't want to disappoint the community, this community. Right. Yeah, that's a powerful idea. And quite frankly, I don't know how it can work any other way. And I know they're cynics, but the cynics are not going to solve the world's problems. I guarantee it. Uh, You know, the people that are going to solve the world's problems are builders, people who want to make a difference. Uh, The leaders of tomorrow are the people who are going to forge new paradigms for for people to work in. And and that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about building a better world in the workplace and beyond. Absolutely. And I mean, that's also why I tell people that, you know, leadership is a learning process that never ends. You'll never be at a point uh, where you can say you've learned it all. Yeah. And, and why would you want to? I no. mean, yeah. You know, the, the fail, I was with a friend yesterday who's runs a wonderful executive search uh, organization headquartered here in Philadelphia. And, you know, every time I talk to him, I delight in the fact that you know, I'm learning something new every day about what's going on and what's relevant today. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it's it's that for me, uh, that's that's essential to my growth as a person. Most organizations have four things that are required that need to be addressed to create the kind of environment where they're lear- where they're uh, feeling that they're getting all their needs met. And it really ties into Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but I, I've summarized it down to four. Actually, I've stolen this from Steve, uh, from a conversation I had with Stephen Covey years ago. He said, Doug, there are four things that organizations need to have. Yeah, people need to make a living. They need to feel loved or a part of the community. They need to be learning. And they need to be working uh, on. A, they need to see an opportunity to leave a legacy of contribution that transcends their own work experience. So it's and, and those four L's are a very powerful notion for anybody leading an organization: living, loving, learning, and leaving a legacy. And uh, and if you want to be a world-class organization that has an enduring uh, uh, 
employee value proposition, you've got to be addressing all four of those things. And that's why uh, tough-minded on standards and tender-hearted with people uh, gets traction with people. We have high standards. We're going to make sure you can make a living, but we're, and we're, but we're going to love you. We're going to help you learn, and we're going to help you do something special. When you address those four things, it's amazing what an organization can do. And that's in the for-profit sector, the not-for-profit sector, and in the public sector. What's interesting about this insight Doug shares is that we had this conversation back in December 2012. And yet the point he makes here is more relevant than ever if you want to not only attract the employees your organization will need to succeed and grow, but retain them and empower them to bring their best selves to the work they do. And this actually serves as a great segue for my next favorite guest from the past 99 episodes, researcher and best-selling author Liz Wiseman. In this episode, Liz and I talk about her best-selling book, Multipliers, which is based on her research looking to understand why some leaders are multipliers who are able to get the best out of their employees, while other leaders are diminishers who demotivate their employees, causing them to be disengaged in their work. And one of the interesting findings Liz shares in her book is how many leaders are not even aware of how their actions and words are actually impeding their team to get the work done, as opposed to empowering their employees to succeed. Let's take a listen to what Liz has to say about this. Oh, yeah, there's that, you know, the old saying that we we judge ourselves on our intentions and we judge other people on their actions. Exactly. And, you know, we, we see that come into play. It was shocking to me in doing this research how few of these diminishers understood that they were having a diminishing impact. You know, as I did parts of this research in Silicon Valley where I've worked and where I know a lot of the executives and people would mention names of leaders, you know, in this diminisher category, I know some of these people and I know they have no idea that they're having this impact. And then, of course, as we've been using assessment tools um, and, and helping individual leaders see their impact, most have no idea. You know, I think we tend to do our greatest harm with the very best of intentions. Um, you know, and so as as I, you know, with Greg, we studied these extremes, these multipliers and diminishers sort of at their extremes. But I think the more interesting insight is that there's a spectrum between these two poles and somewhere in the middle there is what, you know, I call the accidental diminisher. This is the, the good person, the good leader. This is the person that reads management books and goes to management classes and probably is listening to this broadcast. These are people like you and me who have the best of intentions, think we're exhibiting great leadership, but much of what we've been taught or what we've seen through our modeling ends up shutting down smart, capable people, you know, despite our best intentions. Um, you know, for, for example, I'll, I'll share a couple of, of mine, you know, a, a couple ways that I know I have a tendency to end up diminishing. You know, probably the first is what I call the idea guy. You know, these are people who are creative. They're innovative. They're just full of ideas. They come into the office sort of like brimming with ideas and they kind of like a fountain sort of spew ideas 
what's their intention? You know, it's not that our ideas are better than anyone else. We think that our ideas are going to kind of spark other ideas and sort of give people permission to think and be creative. But, you know, if you really look at the impact of what I call these idea guys, what actually happens around them, around us, as I have this tendency? You know, we tend to spout ideas, often ideas du jour. People scurry around going, oh, okay, you know, listening's that or so-and-so wants this. And people make, you know, a millimeter of progress in a hundred different directions, you know, during the course of a month. And they stop, you know, pursuing anything in depth. And, and often they end up stationary because they've chased ideas, none of which have really gone anywhere because there's always a new idea tomorrow or the next day or the next week to replace it. And they end up getting sort of creatively lazy, waiting for the fountain to go off. Um, so sometimes, you know, it's just an example of one of the ways with the best of intentions um, we can diminish. You know, many of us are what I call rescuers. You know, we don't like to see people struggle, make mistakes, suffer, and heaven forbid, fail. And so when we see members of our team about to make a critical mistake, we step in and we, I mean, sometimes we heroically take over and we save the day, but, you know, it's often more subtle. You know, we simply help. But, you know, what happens when the leader is helpful too early or too often? You know, they end up stifling learning. They end up creating dependency. You know, they create an organization that can't get across the finish line without them. They are propping up the runner, you know, and sort of running someone else across the line. Um, and then, you know, they're shocked that they kind of end up rescuing and micromanaging, but it's all done with the best of intentions. How do I make sure my person is successful? You know, there are books that you'll read and years later, you can still remember key points or ideas from them. They're just that good and insightful. Well, I can honestly tell you, Liz's book, Multipliers, easily makes my list. And if you check out this episode, you'll definitely see why my conversation with her is one of my favorites over these past 99 episodes. My next favorite guest from the past 99 episodes is recognized thought leader on strategy and innovation, Matthew E. May. Matthew came on my show to talk about his book, The Laws of Subtraction. And here again, much of it is applicable to our current reality and the challenges we face today. But I think what he shares here about his fourth law of subtraction, creativity thrives under intelligent constraints, is worth another listen. Yeah, you know, it, it, that is the operative word, intelligent. Um, it, it's it seems people seem to glaze over it uh you didn't uh you keyed in on it right away that is the most important part of that particular uh little law um intelligence requires a certain thinking through of what it is um that you truly want to achieve and you know sort of what is that dramatic destination that's going to pull people in um, galvanize them and motivate them to do things in a different way. And that sort of lands us on the doorstep of uh, big, hairy, audacious, stretch kinds of goals. One of the things that you always hear, I always hear, I don't know about you, but I, I always, um, you know, at a certain level of an organization, somewhere down in the middle, um, you hear grumblings of, well, I don't have enough resources to innovate. They want me to innovate, I don't have enough resources. 
Um, and generally speaking, um, that is, I find, to be a cop-out. Because if you think about all of the great stories that we love to read, the Googles of the world, the, the, the Apples of the world, uh, where do they always begin? Well, they tend to begin where? In someone's garage. Garage. Yeah. And, and, you know, is that because guys just like hanging out in the garage <laughs> and that's where they're most creative? I, I, I tend to, to doubt that. I think that they're there in, in the garage um, because they have to be because they don't have what? Resources. They don't have a lot of money. They don't have a lot of space. They don't have furniture. They don't have people. Um, what they do have, though, is that idea that they think is going to change the world. So how do you how do you recreate that kind of feeling in a large organization? The only way that I think that you can really truly uh, do that on a sustainable way is to set constraints in terms of goals, uh, dramatic goals um, that require people to have the kind of reaction that is the kind of reaction um, that, for example, uh, you know, all the Toyota engineers and designers had when uh, uh, AG uh, Toyota said in the mid-80s, we want you to, to create, design and create, produce uh, and sell a luxury performance vehicle that not just matches but beats the top-of-the-line BMW in, and Mercedes in every objective category measured by car and driver, and we want to do it in about four years. 3,700 people collectively, you know, raised their hand and said, that's, that's impossible. It's just impossible because all the goals conflict. Um, you know, every goal that, that you have that you want to achieve to top those two vehicles conflict. Um, you know, you're talking about, gosh, um, the way a car looks, the way it handles, how much it weighs, how much fuel it consumes, how fast it goes, how it accelerates. Um, all those kinds of things um, actually conflict because if you want a car, for example, that has the best acceleration, you need a pretty big engine. Um, and a big engine weighs more and it guzzles more gas. Well, if you're trying to achieve the, the most fuel-efficient car, because that's one of the things that car and driver rates, uh, and curb weight, uh, which is something that they rate, uh, those goals conflict. A big, heavy, gas-guzzling engine, and one that goes through the air slower because styling at that time was all about angles, um, that conflicts directly. So they had to rethink everything, everything about a luxury performance. And they had to redefine it, reimagine it. Um, in so doing, they came up with hundreds of, of innovations, but it wasn't right out of the box. There were 900 engine prototypes, uh, for gosh sakes. But when the Lexus LS400 did hit the, uh, hit the market, it did beat the BMW um, 735i, which is the top of the line, and the, the Mercedes 420 SEL, which was the top of the line at the time in 1989. They shipped a couple of the uh, for, uh, a Cadillac dealer in Southern California, bought two of the early uh, LS400s, promptly shipped them off to Detroit to have GM dismantle them, which they promptly did. And the, the mechanics concluded, guess what? This car cannot be built. <laughs> so, um, but it was the constraints that drove that creativity and innovation. And it, they weren't limitations. They were goals. So um, I hope that makes sense. But it's the, the operative word is intelligent. Again, it was so much fun to listen again to this episode as Matthew shares so many great ideas and insights that honestly do get you to think or rethink how you understand things. On an interesting aside, 
Matthew is one of a handful of guests who, after I interviewed them on my podcast, I had the chance to meet with them in person. And the funny thing is that while we met at a coffee shop here in Montreal, it was Matthew who interviewed me for a piece he was writing. So it was like Leadership Biz Cafe Live in person, but with the roles reversed. Now, as I mentioned at the start of this very special episode, the reason I decided to start this podcast was to have the opportunity to speak with people who fascinated me, whose work intrigued me, and who helped shape my understanding of the nature of leadership and leading others. And without question, my next favorite guest, social psychologist and associate director at Columbia University, Dr. Heidi Grant Halverson, is one of those people. I sat down with Heidi to speak about her book, No One Understands You and What to Do About It. In this segment, Heidi shares what leaders can do to make sure that their employees actually understand what they're trying to communicate, something that we've seen has become a bigger issue as we start to rely more on various digital channels to communicate and collaborate. So first of all, um, you know, knowing it's, it's sort of one of those classics, knowing you have a problem is the first step to a solution, right? So, so understanding that, um, that there is this real danger um, around misperception both, and from both sides um, creates then some energy toward solving the problem, right? It, it, you know, the, the first part of the problem for, for, for much of this is really, you know, I think half of my goal in writing the book was really getting to people to understand that there is a problem. Because again, we don't, we often don't even realize we're not, uh, both not understanding other people and being misunderstood ourselves. So first we need to kind of get, okay, there's a problem. And, and beyond that then, I think the answer is in asking a lot more questions and in inviting more questions. And both of those are really important for leaders. So first, um, doing a lot less talking. <laughs> and I mean, so you have, to, you have to make sure that you say you're very clear and give a lot of detail about the things that you, you want to, to say, that you want to get across. But then to allow more time for, quest, for, that, for, for asking questions of the person who works for you so that you, and, and really listening to the answers. I mean, really... I think devoting a little bit more time to, to literally getting to know the people that work for you and their thought processes and, and leaving a lot of room for them to, to give you answers that would give you windows into that is important. The other thing that's really important that leaders consistently do not do enough of because they don't know they need to do it is inviting questions. Right. So a typical, you know, boss who's in a room with their employee um, will tell them, I want you to do X, Y and Z. And here, you know, and I and I think we need to do or I think we need to do X, Y and Z. And then the, and the other person says, OK, great, that's what we'll do. And they leave the room and, and you don't even realize that there was a miscommunication. You don't even realize necessarily that your direct report doesn't really understand what you meant, um, doesn't understand why they're supposed to do this, is maybe misinterpreting why they're supposed to do this, because there was no room in that conversation. There was no invitation to ask questions. And there are sort of social norms that people adhere to without even necessarily being conscious of it. Most direct reports don't feel comfortable saying something, thing, saying something like, I, I really don't understand what you mean. Or, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit confused about why we're doing this. Um, those feel like um, either they will feel sort of stupid for asking the question or they, they feel like it might come across as confrontational. 
Um, and both of those things are obviously bad to do in front of your boss, right? So they don't ask questions. And so the, the leader walks away feeling like they were understood and everything is clear because nobody asked a question. And the and direct report walks away with lots of questions, but not feeling comfortable enough to ask them. And sometimes then draws the wrong conclusion because they didn't feel comfortable enough to ask. So super important for leaders in their one-on-one -on -one conversations or their team conversations to take to set aside time to invite questions and to invite them in a way that's really positive, you know, in a way that, that encourages people to ask them to say things like, you know, I, I know that I just said a lot and I'm sure I didn't say half of it very clearly. So I'm, I'm sure I, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I'm sure it's not clear what I mean. So, so, you know, please do ask me some questions because this has to be confusing and complicated for you. Um, you know, I, you know, to invite that, to make it okay for people to say, yeah, actually, now that you mentioned it, I, I really don't understand what you meant by that second thing that you said. Um, and all of a sudden you realize that there are all these questions there that people would have loved to ask, but they just didn't feel like they could. So, so I would say that's one of the single most powerful things leaders can do is not only invite questions, it's not, sim it's not, by the way, as simple as just at the end of the conversation saying, so do you have any questions? Because, you know, then people say no. <laughs> you really have to make it okay. You have to say like, you must have some questions because I'm sure, you know, I'm sure not everything I said was clear or, you know, I'm sure, you know, I didn't explain that as well as I'd like to. So, you know, uh, you know, is there anything you would like to ask? You know, I'm happy to answer. Um, make it really okay for them, really encourage it. And you clear up a tremendous number of miscommunications before they have the potential to do real damage. Again, just like my conversation with Matthew, there's a lot of fascinating insights and advice Heidi shares in this episode to, as she just said, not only understand this common problem we all have with people misunderstanding us and we misunderstanding them, but how we can effectively address it. So we're now halfway through my short list of the top 10 guests I've had on my podcast to date. And next up is innovation and disruption expert Whitney Johnson who was recently recognized as one of the 50 leading business thinkers in the world. In this segment, Whitney explains why having constraints early in the disruptive innovation process is actually beneficial. And given how we're all currently having to deal with both disruptions and constraints, Whitney's advice here is both timely and instructive. Yeah, so the constraints, you're right, it is counterintuitive. Um, two things I'll say there is the first is, if you think about um, whenever you're trying something new and think about a child, they're learning to walk, they, they have things that they're bumping up against the floor, the couch, etc. And those constraints are actually giving them information. So whenever you put yourself in a box, you get a lot of information because you're bumping up against things. And so whenever you're trying something new, you want and you need lots and lots of feedback. And so rather than those constraints making it, you know, making it more difficult for you to climb a curve, they actually make it easier because you're getting feedback. So for example, you want to jump to a new curve. If you have as much time, as much money, as much buy-in from people around you, as much expertise as you could possibly ever hope for, where do you start? I mean, you have no idea where to start at all. But if instead you, you say, you know what, I've got sort of six months to make this work, or I've got a year to make this work, and I've got 
$10,000 in the bank to make this work. And these are the five things that I know how to do really, really well. And here's a problem that I think needs to be solved. All of a sudden now you've made, you've given yourself some constraints to some things to bump up against. And so within that box that you have, it's much easier for you to say, okay, well, based on these, this box that I'm inside, how, and this problem that I want to solve, how can I play where no one else is playing? And what strengths do I have that will help me do that? And what I would argue is that, in fact, you don't actually discover what your real strengths are, your best strengths are, until you have constraints. Because otherwise, you're, you're able to rely on other things that you're able to get more easily, and it, it doesn't force you to dig deep enough. And so I let me just tell you a quick story around this. There was a, a great um, analysis done in Entrepreneur Magazine a few years ago, actually in 2007, and they looked at the 500 fastest growing companies in, in the United States. And that was interesting. But what was really interesting to me was that they looked at how these companies had funded their growth. And mind you, 61% of these companies were profitable within the first year, and it's 500. So it's a big sample size. What they found is that only 28% of these companies had access to bank loans only 18% had access to equity, and only 4%, 4% had access to venture capital. So we now know that at least 50% and as much as 72% of these companies had had to bootstrap their businesses, what they had on hand, the resources that they had on hand. And so my question, and this goes back to the question of constraints as you're trying to disrupt, is were these companies successful in spite of or because of their constraints? I think the answer is clear. It's because of. Right, exactly. Because I mean, if you think about it, and I think there's a real gem of a nugget there that's worth emphasizing again, is that we really, in terms of disruptive innovation, have to shift our understanding and perspective of constraints from being something that's an obstacle to really being a source of feedback, right? Because exactly. as you point out, it's what's allowing us to be more focused because it's limiting what we're paying attention to so we can actually make some progress, right? If we had all these resources, we had all this time, then we have so many things we can be focusing on that we can't really feel like we're making any traction or progress. But by having those limitations on, okay, well, I only have this much money, then that's what we're going to use to focus on saying, okay, we got to be very judicious in how we employ it. And Tavir, you know, something I just thought of as you were talking, I think about, you know, I have these days where I long for, you know, this blank page of a day, right? Nothing on my calendar. <laughs> And yet on those days, I don't get as much done mm. as on the days where I know I have like three things that are due tomorrow. I am so much more productive. And so to your point is constraints focus us. Now, I know many of us long for a blank page day in our calendar, but I think Whitney's remarks here help us understand how there's a difference between needing time for reflection and review and just having a blank day. Because without that constraint for how we'll use that time, we end up just losing it as opposed to feeling like we spent it well. And I also love how Whitney's insights here build on what Matthew shared in his. My next favorite guest I want to share with you is former Yahoo executive and best-selling author Tim Sanders. Tim is the first leadership expert I ever spoke with who talked about the importance of love in business and leadership what he referred to in his best-selling book, Love is the Killer App, as biz love. So naturally, my conversation with him left a lasting impression. 
In this segment, Tim builds on what Doug shared earlier by discussing research findings about how we narrow our attention the more things seek to influence us and what leaders need to do to overcome this mental barrier to truly engage and rally employees around their vision or goals. Oh, you're going to love this wonky example I'll give you for that because attention is our very most scarce resource. But um, I don't even ever heard of Broadbent's theory, but Dr. Donald Broadbent, United Kingdom, developed an elegant theory, did a lot of experiments, a lot of other researchers have validated it over the years. And here's what he says. The human brain constantly adapts to reduce depression by limiting incoming attempts for our attention. Right. So he believes that there's this filter. They call it Broadbent's filter because we always do that with academics. We name the invention or theory after the academic. But Broadbent's filter basically says the brain is developing a denser and denser and denser filter directly in relationship to influence attempts. And that today it is a miracle, a miracle, Tanvir, when anyone gets through and we hear them. We understand them and we believe them. We act on them and we remember them the next day. And 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 on the, the page, we'll talk about the page I'm setting up for your listeners later. I'll have a link to Broadband's filter and a graphic for you to see how dense this filter is, how many inputs a message has to go through, right? Because when he was studying this in England, I'm sure the average Londoner was being accosted for their attention probably a couple, a dozen times a day. You know, the guy selling newspapers, the trolley car ringing the bell with ads. But Seth Godin said several years ago that the average consumer, this is before social media, they're being accosted for their attention over 500 times a day. Now, here's the punchline to the whole story. So when Broadbent's studying brain research behind this, he does discover that there is a, a, a velvet rope or Silicon Valley terms. There's a hack around the filter. It's called the amygdala. It's the emotional seat of the brain, which is 35 times more powerful than the logical part of the brain. And what Broadbent realized and what I evangelized is that the shortest distance between two people is an emotionally positive connection. So like if you think, and this is why leaders have to know this, if you think I really care about you, I'm going to get through to you and I'm going to move you to action. I'm going to help you align with our values and our perspective. That's why it's so critical for leaders to develop the ability to care and show it to other people, because that is the secret to influence in a world of no attention. It really is a revealing conversation I have with Tim, not just about biz love, but about how there's real value and benefits to embracing a more abundant mindset around the giving of our time and insights something that I think leaders need to get more comfortable with as the nature of work continues to evolve. And this point about evolving our understanding about today's workplaces makes for a great setup for my next favorite guest, Dr. Timothy Clark, who came on my podcast to talk to me about his book, The Four Stages of Psychological Safety. Psychological safety is a term that's rightfully been getting a lot of attention lately as workplaces become more racially and culturally diverse. Now, for many of us, when we think of psychological safety, what comes to mind is inclusion. But as Timothy points out in his book, this is only the baseline, and we need to aim for more. So, if this is the bare minimum, why do so many leaders and their organizations struggle to provide it in their workplace? Let's hear what Tim has to say about it. Well, let's go back to the why question, Tanvir, first. Why do... Why do we struggle with this so much? We struggle because of the universal human condition of being insecure. Human beings are insecure. And 
they want to fit in uh, and they want to matter and they want to be important. So let's go back to the principle of inclusion safety that you touched on. The way that I frame it in the book is to say that worth precedes worthiness. So inclusion safety is based on your worth, your inherent intrinsic worth as a human being. Worthiness comes later. Issues of performance and are you measuring up, that, that comes later. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about inherent worth. So if you're human and you're harmless, then you are entitled to inclusion safety. It's a human right. It's not something that you earn. It's something that you're owed. And think about how much we struggle with this. It's crazy uh, throughout organizations. And we, we have continued to struggle. Now, what, why do we struggle? Well, we have governed our organizations and institutions and teams with, as I call it in the, in the book, junk theories of superiority. We try to justify superiority with all kinds of reasons. So I'm better than you based on my education or my money or my ethnicity or my gender or my athletic prowess or my beauty or my, it's, it goes on and on and on. And all of those theories of superiority are patently false. They're all false. Or I've got a higher rank than you, or I've got more position or title or authority. It, it, it just, or uh, my political ideology is better than you, or my philosophy is better than you. My family's better than you. My neighborhood's better than you. This is what we do. So we create these divisions and these boundaries, and then uh, we, and, and then we struggle. So think about what's happening now. Is there, is, is there any way that you can justify racism? Is there any way that you can justify racism? No, there's not. It's a junk theory of superiority. That's what it is. So when people get insecure, they grasp for some reason to elevate themselves and subordinate other people. And that's what we do. That's why inclusion safety is stage one. It's the baseline. It's the foundation. And why do we continue to struggle? Because we have leaders in organizations that continue to, to perpetuate and model these junk theories. And they tell themselves soothing stories about how important they are and how special they are. And they're a little bit more special than the next guy. Well, that's complete rubbish. But this is what we've been doing for centuries and millennia as human beings. And what's so fantastic, though, Tanvir, about what's happening now is because I've been talking to all kinds of leaders and executives over the last couple of weeks. They are all of them are conducting an institutional examination of conscience at a deeper level, probably than they have ever done in their entire lifetimes. And that is a good thing because we've got to get rid of the self-deception that we often swim in, in organizations. It's the only way, until we get honest, we can't overcome these things. And, and so I do think that the good news is that I see 
more unvarnished examination, more penetrating, more unsparing uh, self-inventory going on right now than I've seen perhaps in my lifetime. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. It's interesting how Tim's insights here build and mesh with what Doug, Liz, and Heidi spoke about, and how each of them also presents us with a positive outlook that, yes, we have these problems, we have these challenges, but they're not as daunting or insurmountable as we might think. It just requires a greater level of intentionality on our part for how we're going to address it and provide those conditions that will allow our employees to succeed and thrive. Of course, another major issue that's received a lot of attention over the past several years is the unique challenges and obstacles women face moving into leadership roles, which is why I was delighted to speak with one of the top experts on women's leadership, Sally Helgeson, about her book, How Women Rise, that she co-wrote with Marshall Goldsmith. Although this is a book that was written for women, it's a telling sign that halfway through it, I was making a note to buy copies for my daughters the minute they joined the workforce to help them better navigate their career trajectory. In this segment, Sally explains a common habit that women have that prevents them from rising in their careers. And as I mentioned to Sally, it's one I've seen myself in my work speaking with women leaders. And it's the habit women have of expecting others to notice their work and reward them for it, as opposed to speaking up for yourself to let others know what you expect. Here's what Sally has to say about that. You know, I first became aware of this years ago. I was doing a study for some partnership firms. It wasn't for strategy and business, but it was something else I was writing. And uh, when I talked with the women who were at the most senior level in the firms, one of the questions I said, you know, what are the women here best at? The younger women who have p potential to be big players in the firms, what are their, what are they best at and what's their biggest challenge? And they were pretty consistent in their answers. They're best at doing really high quality work, that overemphasis on expertise, that you know, very conscientious, showing up, working hard, going the extra mile. And they're worst at drawing attention to it. And and then when I asked the young ladies, or the young women, you know, what what holds you back? They'd say, you know, well, I believe that if I do great work, people should notice. Well, you know, they probably should. And in a perfect world, they would. But people don't. And uh, especially today, even more today, people are so busy, so distracted, so much operating in a kind of overwhelm that really expecting other people to notice uh, the details of what you've done is 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 pretty unrealistic. And, you know, once again, you need to get accustomed to saying it. What holds women back often and I hear this over and over. Well, it's perceived of as different when women talk about what they're what they've achieved than when men talk about it. You know, if women talk about it, they're seen as too ambitious. Uh, you know, if men talk about it, it's kind of expected. And you know what? Guess what? Maybe that's true. And often it is true, although I think it's increasingly I think it's, you know, less true than it used to be in the past. But so what? So what if somebody says, oh, I think she's a little too ambitious, too bad. Should you back off proactively and just put yourself in this completely passive position where you're hoping people notice what you're doing and contributing um, because you're afraid someone somewhere might say that they think you're too ambitious? 
as long as women let themselves let themselves be held back by that kind of fear, um, things aren't going to change. So it's really important to get comfortable uh, speaking about these things. And uh, and it only is comfortable, and this is part of what I've learned from Marshall, is through repetition, through doing it, through doing it over and over and over, through practicing, saying, hey, you know, I'm trying to get better at um, claiming my achievements. Um, can I try this out on you? Can I talk a little bit about, I'm, I'm sure your daughters aren't going to do this with you because that's not how kids operate. But but in terms of the workplace, you know, get get somebody who can help you um, and 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 try it out on them. So, you know, it's really if you identify something like this, you want to get comfortable changing it. And, and that's how good habits are formed. It's interesting how the point Sally makes here reflects what Tim said about our attention and how our brain starts shutting down what we notice. Putting these two insights together offers an interesting revelation for part of the reason most organizations are having a hard time building up their talent pipelines. And now we come to my 10th and final guest I wanted to showcase in this 100th episode retrospective. Someone I was elated to hear was interested in appearing in my podcast, a global authority on trust, leadership, and culture, Stephen M. R. Covey. In this episode, Stephen and I talked about his book, The Speed of Trust, and how he writes that to build trust, you need to have credibility, which he writes has four cores to it, integrity, intent, capabilities, and results. And in this segment from our conversation, Stephen explains not only why intent is so important to fostering trust in your leadership, but also why it's a great starting point to fostering greater levels of trust. Intent is maybe the highest leveraged of the four cores of credibility. Um, I didn't say that it was necessarily the most important because I have a hard time arguing with integrity, but it's the highest leverage in that it's maybe the one we can have the quickest and the fastest impact on because it's how we view the world. And we tend to judge ourselves by our intent, which we know, but we tend to judge others by their behavior, which we see. We may or may not know their intent. And same thing with other, with, as people look at us, they see our behavior, they may or may not know our intent. And so here's what I've learned as a great best practice to our listeners, to build trust faster, to improve intent. Um, you know, again, and again, intent is that, you know, that the, the motive is caring and the agenda is mutual benefit, win-win, versus being self-serving and uncaring. And so you want to improve intent. The best way I know to improve intent is to declare your intent. Declare yourself. Declare your intent. So you share not only what you're doing, but especially share why you're doing it. Always give the why behind the what. Sometimes people give the what, but they often don't give the why. The why gives meaning. The why gives context. The why can change everything. Give the why. Be open, be transparent, declare yourself. So here's how, how it might look. Let's say that you're the leader of a team and you come in and you say, team, here's what we're trying to do. Here's why we're trying to do it. Here's my agenda. I don't have a hidden agenda. I have an open agenda. I'm transparent. There's nothing to hide. I declare my intent. I declare myself. I'm, I'm, now, the very act of doing that, of declaring your intent, you know, you're being vulnerable. 
But as Brene Brown says, when you, when you choose to lead with that vulnerability, people respond back. You make it safe for them to be vulnerable back. And you become real. You become authentic. And people tend to trust you. They don't think you're hiding something. They don't, they don't see you as having a hidden agenda, hidden motive. I wonder what he's trying to do. No, you're open. You're transparent. It also gives people a new lens through which they will view your subsequent behavior. They see you differently. And the thing about it is this. When you don't declare your intent to your people, when you don't declare yourself and your intent and open yourself up, be transparent, what do you suppose people are going to do anyways when you don't declare your intent? They're going to ascribe intent to you. They're going to guess it. And, and it, you know, at best or at worst, they're going to project worst case fears or, you know, doubts and, and project their fears on you. And our rule is no guessing. Tell them, declare yourself, declare your intent. They'll, it, will give them, it will give your people, your team, a new lens through which they will interpret your subsequent behavior. That's why it's such a powerful lever to build trust faster. And it's something that you can do differently walking out of this, you know, listening to this podcast. You get in a situation, declare your intent. And by the way, as a starting point, as you work with other people, start by assuming positive intent, at least until proven otherwise. It's such a better starting point. So imagine, what if you as a leader got really good at declaring your intent and assuming positive intent? You'll go so much farther and faster in building trust with others. What if your team and the team members got good at this? What if you got good at this with customers and partners? These are practical, tangible ways to kind of build trust on purpose, intentionally. And intent is one of the key levers that builds it. And you want to get better at intent? Declare your intent and assume positive intent really powerful kind of best practices to put this into action. Now, I know we've covered a lot of great insights here, but what I love about what Stephen shares here is how it encapsulates so much of what we've heard over the course of this episode. It's like we started with this very granular look at various aspects of what we need to do to succeed at leadership. And Stephen pulls us back to take a wider view of our leadership, but also gets us to look inward to see how we're showing up and what we're bringing into those interactions with those we lead. And Stephen also leaves us with a great place to begin making changes to how you approach your leadership so you can move closer to being the kind of leader your employees need you to be to succeed in their efforts. So I hope this look back at some of my favorite conversations over these past 99 episodes encourages you to check out past episodes of this podcast. I know for myself, Going back and listening to the conversations has made me appreciate all the timely and important insights my guests were so gracious in sharing with my listeners. And I hope this retrospective encourages you to check out our upcoming episodes as well, as we do have some wonderful guests lined up for this year, some of whom I expect to have some very thought-provoking conversations with about some of the messier and difficult issues leaders today need to navigate if their organization is to thrive in the years ahead. I want to thank you for listening to this very special episode of my podcast, and I'm looking forward to what the future holds and what we'll be sharing in our 200th episode of this podcast. Until next time, I'm Tavin Asir, and you've been listening to the 100th episode of Leadership Biz Cafe.